Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very happy to say we have Anna Fischlund on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Fandom, Authenticity, and Opera, Mad Acts and Letter Scenes in Fin de Cicle, uh, Russia. You can tell I don't really know French can't you? But that's all right. Um, as Anna pointed out, I know some Russian, so that's good. So, uh, Anna, let me say welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Anna and I have known each other for a long time, so it's really a, a great treat for me to see her book and to talk to her about this. And it's a subject that I don't know a lot about. I confess that. So I'm likely to learn a ton as well. And I know that she knows everything about this, so we're in for a treat. So, Anna, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I, I live in New York City, and I currently teach at Williams College. But I was born in the Soviet Union, and my um, my family left in in 1979 as uh, as part of that big wave of Russian Jewish immigration. I did not know that. I've known you forever, and I yeah. did not know that. That's weird. How did how <laughs> it, I did not know that? Anyway, go ahead. No, no. But if you interview, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you were like just to interview random 100 people who, who immigrated in that wave, and you were to ask them, what did your parents do in the Soviet Union? What were their professions? They would tell you engineer and music teacher. Or like 70, I mean, I don't know, this is rough estimate. I'd say 70% would tell you that. So that's kind of my story. My mother was a music teacher and my father was an engineer. But because my mom relevant to this book, because my mother was a music teacher, there was always lots of music at the, you know, in my home, uh, lots of piano playing, singing, and some sound recordings, and of course, like students would come for lessons and butcher, I don't know, Chopin or whatever. Uh, but there wasn't much opera. Um, and then after we immigrated already at about age 12, I was looking through my mother's classical melodia recordings that she had. She brought them over from the Soviet Union. And I found in there uh, two opera recordings, one of Verdi's Rigoletto and the other of Verdi's Traviata. And they were and that was it. I just completely um, was enthralled. It was just changed my life. And they were sung. It was old Bolshoi theater recordings. So they were sung in Russian. 
was Verdi in Russian, but it didn't matter. It was just really good. And then uh, in high school, I guess, and in college, my interest in opera really grew and blossomed, and I started to go to a few operas, and I, I bought a few recordings. I was, like, swooning to Puccini in my dorm room at Duke University, and while everyone else was, I don't know, at a frat party or something. And then I got to graduate school, and I really began uh, then to explore opera in earnest. I was at Columbia in New York City, and I, I would sort of go to you know, Russian history colloquia in the evenings and then race down from Morningside Heights to the Metropolitan Opera House and uh, buy tickets outside, usually buy a ticket from some some poor guy who had to, like, unload a ticket at the last minute and unload, like, a $100 ticket for 20 bucks. And that would be me. I was like, I'm here for you. <laughs> so that's how I saw a lot of opera. I would, stopping is very, it's very much police at the Mets. There were no scalpers. There were just these people desperate to get rid of tickets. It's a little different now. But anyway, um, I also started to collect recordings at that time, CDs, and some vinyl, but mainly CDs. And now I own 18 Triviatas and 20 Rigolettos. Yeah. And that's just on compact discs. So um, I'm very proud of my opera collection. But, yeah. Anyway, so when it was, uh, I guess, more relevant again to the book, when it was time to pick a dissertation topic, I, I knew I had to do opera. I knew I had to do something about opera. I wasn't sure what yet, but it was obvious that I would never lose interest in this topic, that it would really be... Amy. And also, I, I from the from pretty early on, I was interested uh, in the Fendisiak and in, in, in late Imperial Russia, the Fendisiak, or you know, early 20th century, whatever you would like to call it. Um, at the time, there was a lot of interest among historians in the European Fendisiak. Uh, that was in the early in the late 1990s, um, but in Russia, in the Russian context, less so. I mean, there was certainly a lot of interest in in the Silver Age uh, by lit scholars. And, um, but historians were, were too, they were sort of more focused on 1905 with an eye toward 1917, things like uh, the workers' movement or um, revolutionary activity. They were less, historians were less concerned about culture in this, with, with the exception of Laura Engelstein, I must say, with whom I ended up taking a class on Lee Imperial Russia at mm-hmm. uh, Princeton. She was at Princeton at the time, and she she was a real inspiration um, to me at that time. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember so, those days very well. It was either, uh, it was revolution and then it was mass murder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those are the two things you <laughs> And I thought there has studied. to be something more. Yeah. There has to be. <laughs> revolution and mass murder. <laughs> yeah, although, right, I, I even, I think that opera at that point even dovetails with revolution. Everything seems to dovetail with revolution. So, um, so those were the, the sort of early sources of inspiration for me. Well, I mean, that's terrific that it's, so it's just sort of closely associated with an, an interest of yours. Would you say it's authentic? That was a joke, sort of, not the book. Never mind that. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. um, Who knows about these things, really? So uh, can we sort of set the scene? I don't, again, I'm, it's occurring to me that I'm using all these uh, metaphors that people are going to laugh at. Set the scene <laughs> <laughs> um, and talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the origins of opera in in Russia. How did it get to Russia just very briefly? We don't usually associate sort of, I know for a fact, medieval and early modern Russia don't really associate it with opera. Italy is associated with opera, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in the 18th century, Elizabeth and, and Catherine most notably invited uh, Italians uh, to come and, and compose, actually, 
in, at court. And so, of course, uh, this is uh, true of in many places. Opera began in the courts, in, in the court, <laughs> rather, uh, in the imperial court. And, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, something that, in other words, you didn't have Russian composing very much until the 19th century. There was no, there were no conservatories in Russia until the 1860s. Um, so there, there was a big shift basically in the 19th century. Uh, you have public theaters being built. You have um, Russian composers emerging, certainly the mighty handful, Mussorgsky, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov, mm-hmm. uh, people like that, and of course Tchaikovsky, mm-hmm. m- most famously. Um, and then in my period, so around 1882, uh, the the Imperial uh, Theater dissolves its monopoly on on opera in the capital. So up until 1882, you, there were no private operas in the capital. So of course there were there were surf theaters and all kinds of things going on in the provinces, makeshift uh, theater and opera. But but in the capitals, um, you only had the court, the Imperial Theater, and uh, the the Bolshoi Theater, for example, in in, in Petersburg, and then you had. Um, so you basically only had that in, in, in oh you had visiting troops that's right sorry. Mm-hmm. you had visiting troops you had Italian troops coming during Lent for the Lent season for example when the Bolshoi Theater was off and and they would they would perform and then uh, with the appearance of private opera things really changed because they as as I argue and others have they they introduced private opera uh, theaters introduced. Um, New performance practices, new standards. They're, they're more experimental. Um, they also are really dependent on celebrity singers to sell tickets. So they, they're really promoting stars, um, um, maybe even more heavily than the Imperial Theater, who already has a kind of system in place and everything is more bureaucratized. And uh, and they influence. They end up influencing the Imperial Theater a lot because they start competing with them. You know, contract-wise, and started to, they start to steal uh, singers even from the Imperial Theater, some mm-hmm. of the best talent. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, that's sort of where I uh, my story emerges from this moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, these people, uh, again, after the elimination of the, I guess, the ban on private performances, uh, there emerged a class of uh, of entertainment entrepreneurs. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure, uh, a lot of them. A lot of the more successful ones uh, emerge from the merchant estate, and I think that you know, and not the, the stereotype about merchants in Russia was they were sort of failed, failed bourgeoisie, failed. They weren't as good as the as the middle class or the, the bourgeoisie in Europe. They they sort of they weren't as strong politically. Um, they didn't dominate culture in the same way in the in the late nineteenth century. Etc. Like, but but I argue that that's not quite true. That sure, it was just you know it, what what is the standard here exactly? I mean, they they did attempt at least a small group of them really worked hard to supplant the nobility as the makers uh, and drivers of enlightenment and of culture. And so um, they uh, among them, and I, I discussed Saba Mamontov, um, who was a railroad magnate, but then was also an arts patron. And I discussed him in some depth, and and then also Sergei Zinin, who uh, Zinin was a kind of successor, a self-appointed successor to Mamontov, and both had had pretty successful private opera companies uh, in Moscow. So um, they uh, 
they not only, what I try to also, and what I emphasize is that they not only had these successful opera companies that introduced new performance standards, et cetera, they themselves kind of served as models of, of self-fashioning, uh, a certain approach to, um, you know, how does one, how does one engage with culture? Let me show you by acting it out kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. so their images, their roles in public life were an example for other merchants. Um, so yes, Russian merchants maybe weren't as culture savvy as, as those in, say, France, uh, as the bourgeoisie in France, but, but they weren't quite so, so backward as, as at least some historians would have it. At least this is what my claim is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did their performances, the early performances, differ from those in the imperial theaters? Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the things, a lot of people know about Stanislavski, Konstantin Stanislavski, and he, you know about this, and, and, and the uh, and dramatic stage, and how he introduced um, ensemble acting and a more, and the sort of realist practices on the stage. And what, what a lot of people do not know is that he was actually influenced by Sava Mamontov, who introduced so-called realist performance or realist, emotional realism on the stage. Now, so we shouldn't necessarily imagine that this was naturalism. In other words, you know, my basic argument is that for them, realism meant melodrama. It, it meant being really intense emotionally on the stage. It meant really embodying your character. Everything had to be perfect. The, the makeup you know, expressed character on the stage. The costumes expressed the character. The set design. Everybody worked together um, to create this, this uh this work of art that was very integrated. The Imperial Theater at that time was not doing that. They had they had craftsmen doing the sets, for example, and not people like Rubel or Ripien or whomever. Right? They didn't have artists creating sets. They had so so that was already a different concept concept in the in the uh, private on the private stage. Also, they the acting that was going on in opera in the Imperial Theater wasn't. It was the opposite of sort of emotional realism. It was uh, very mannered gestures. And if you see that sometimes even today, like at the Met, I don't know if you've ever been to the opera, but occasionally you'll see these people who kind of move almost robotically on mm-hmm. the stage. And it's less and less acceptable actually now because of HD, because of live, um, because these things are streamed across the world and, mm-hmm. or, or shown. Uh, but And you see close-ups and everything. But, but there, for a long time, this is kind of... This kind of practices were, uh, this is just what you saw. And what was the most important was like, look, it's the star on the stage. And, and this personality of the star kind of shines through. Um, this other mode was the star or the, or the personality of the singer merges with the role. And, and again, it starts to embody the role. And of course, the, the biggest exponent of this, the biggest, the, the greatest example, the most famous example is Fyodor Shalyakin, this famous base who Mamontov discovered and uh, actually stole from the Marinsky Theater in a way, <laughs> uh, lured him away, um, made him a star, and then, and then the course, Shalyatin famously like, went back to the Bolshoi Theater, became a star there, and then emigrated and performed in opera houses all over the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the important themes in the book is authenticity. And so are we touching on that now? In other words, these... Uh, m- I want to use the word melodramatic because it appears quite frequently in the book. Are they... Are, is the notion that the, the, the actor, singer, is is being authentic? Or how should we understand this? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, 
I didn't set out to actually necessarily study authenticity. I was thinking more about selfhood and understanding, you know, when I was looking at the sources and I was reading various sources, I was reading them for, okay, what, how do these people understand their inner lives? How do they uh, imagine themselves? How do they fashion themselves? How do they work on themselves? But what really emerged for me pretty early, both in the performance practice part of it and in the uh, letters I later look at and various uh, press, uh, various articles, et cetera, is that the concept of authenticity was, um, well, authenticity meant intensity. Uh, the, the more you expressed, uh, well, the, the, the more strongly, the, the more the, the louder that you expressed yourself, the more authentic you were being. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more passionate you were, the more authentic you were being. And sometimes when I tell people this, they'll, I mean, I, yes, they'll just say to me like, well, this that's right. That, that sounds about right. That's how we think of authenticity now. But honestly, if you were, at least my reaction, I'll just speak for myself. When I initially read some of these um, tests, you know, like some of these letters, for example, the fans wrote to the opera singer or, or, or when you hear about some of these performances, you think this is over the top. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, this is, this is artificial. It's so over the top, it's artificial. But, but for these people at this time, and this is my argument, this was authentic. It was just right. It was exactly what was needed to prove authenticity, was this kind of, um, so they, they were operating with an aesthetic of excess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, there are certain actors even today that they always shout when they act. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> at least in films, they're just always shouting, and somehow that's, that's authentic. And so where did they get this notion that, that, that this sort of emotive personality type, this sort of externally tied kind of effusive personality type was authentic? Huh. Well, that that is a very... That's a big question, I know. I mean, that's I, a huge... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't know, because I, I don't think of it that way any longer. In fact, usually when I see somebody acting in a super demonstrative way, I think they're faking it. Um, but exactly. that's just me. Yeah, well... My idea, it's a very elusive question, but, um, and, and one necessarily has to be speculative. In fact, you know, that's just sort of cultural history, right? We're not trying to, cultural historians aren't trying to prove anything empirically. Um, they're just trying to get at sort of how people make meaning and how they fantasize. Mm-hmm. But, but I will say that the concept of melodrama sort of ties into this. And this, this is why the, well, this concept that I get from Peter Brooks, uh, called the melodramatic imagination. Um, or what that he calls the melodramatic imagination really really fits here. Or and I, I sort of use that as a central concept in the book. Obviously, um, so Brooks argues, and I and I really buy this that uh, he treats melodrama as as a, first of all as a, as a genre and a meaning making system. So it's something that appears on the stage, right? And and it it, it runs across. And yeah, you can have melodramatic opera, you can have melodramatic theater, you can have melodramatic later film. Uh, but it doesn't have to be melodramatic. So, so it runs across media, um, and it also is the way that people behave. It's the way they lead their lives. It's a certain set of aesthetic practices, and and it's a, it, it it also encompasses a kind of morality. You know, what do you consider ethical? What do you consider moral? That's when the authenticity piece comes in. Mm-hmm. And he argues that um, that this emerges as melodramatic. Uh, first of all, the genre of the melodrama and melodramatic aesthetics or melodramatic imagination emerges during times of upheaval, of social and political upheaval. So it's, he thinks it's not an accident, for example, that melodrama on the stage emerged uh, as a genre. It emerged uh, during the French Revolution and uh, or right around, you know, the, the late 18th century in France. 
and that the early melodramas just they used uh, music to accentuate and, and heighten feeling on the stage. So it's supposed to like uh, make you feel more as you were watching as the theater. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he argues that it emerges when institutional uh, authority is falling apart. Um, the, the the state is desacralized. Religion is kind of you know you have secularization, and and moral authority. There seems to be a vacuum or or a near vacuum of moral authority, and it falls on the individual. The individual uh, and the person's person, as he puts it, assumes the burden of moral enunciation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So so you, as a person, have to testify to morality that morality is still present in the world when all this other stuff has, you know, sort of failed, and that uh, this causes this kind of confessional mode and 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 intensity in the. you have to, you have to really testify. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean I see just what you mean. So, would you say in these late 19th, early 20th century operas, and in terms of the fans as well, that that this, there's really a, a kind of emphasis on the person and the person's emotional life, as opposed to, let's say, an overtly political opera or an opera about, um, you know, let's say uh, etiquette or, or manners or something like that. So these are really about people's stormy lives. Right. In fact, if you look at so-called historical opera in Russia in the late 19th century, like, for example, Tchaikovsky's Mazepa or um, Mussorgsky's Havanshchina, if you just look at the story, yes, there's all this uh, politics going on. Um, usually it's referring to the time of trouble, say. But, but that seems almost like a backdrop. It's, just, it's a backdrop for the love story. Mm-hmm. The love story is so dominant. And... and, and, and uh, Various characters' moral authority is expressed through their, the love story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. you know the the old believers in Havanshina are marching off to burn themselves. But really, what we care about is the mezzo soprano belting out notes about how oh my god her love Andre has betrayed her and you know uh, and and this is this is supposed to be the most real, the most expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. So we have so everything just, comes out of the psychic and goes out towards the social instead of the other way. Yeah, I see just what you mean. And I it would contrast it to, say, I don't know, so, Soviet performances, which I've seen a lot of, you know, where it's like uh, there, there's usually a love story, and usually it's a love story between a guy and a tractor or an oil derrick or something, and there's a, <laughs> there's a girl there or something. But really, it's just overtly political and just about – and these people are just they're, – they're sort of cardboard characters. Whereas in the things you're talking about, these people are – a sort of full human beings, and they're sort of bearing all to you. And the historical backdrop sort of recedes. It's just really about them, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. right, exactly. I, I got it. And uh, people ate this stuff up, huh? Yes. Okay. Go ahead and, <laughs> and talk a little allowed, bit about the it, audience. It, yeah. It, 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 yes, sorry. And it allowed a certain engagement um, on a very personal and, and intimate level, I argue. Well, it's funny because it reminds me we have a channel here about historical fiction, and I've read a little historical fiction. So some of it, I, I, it appeals to me, and I'll put it that way. But much of it, and I think the most popular historical fiction, is is really just it's a love story that's set someplace. Huh. And the being set someplace is kind of cool because the person knows a lot about it, but it's really the love story. And in this sense, they're, they are sort of romances masquerading as historical mm. fiction, if you see what I mean. <laughs> you know, they're, right. they're really sort of dramatic romances. They're not, you know, just that they have this patina. They're set in a certain place, and, and that's used for, for marketing purposes. You know, so it's an Elizabethan love story, right? That kind of thing. Mm. But tell us a little bit about the, the audiences, because one of the interesting things that you find is the, the appearance of people that um, not only really like these things, but more than really like them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so... Uh... 
the first, uh, and, and I encountered them, so I'll just, I'll talk about a little bit about how I, I researched the book, because for me, how they emerged for me. They initially, these people, who, who the fans, first emerged through the press. I, I would be, I mean, I was reading the entertainment press, and I noticed that there were all these men, uh, that, that the satirical press in particular was always talking about this Peter Psychopata. If you notice, it's, a, it's the feminine version of psychopath or psychopath mm-hmm. or, or lunatic, more colloquially. So, and then the, these psychopathy, these, these female fans, um, were, were acting in all kinds of histrionic ways, and they were branded like sort of narcissists, kind of crazy. Um, they were obsessed with the person of, of, the, of the star and uh, of the singer rather than their art. This was something that was pinned on them. Um, and then that's, that's actually why they were so offensive. They were, they were uh, violating uh, these, these, these hierarchies, uh, these genre hierarchies. They were, they were behaving in a kind of lowbrow way and, and the highbrow, in a highbrow uh, context. Mm-hmm. And the highbrow itself was just being constructed. It's not like this was such an old thing. And, uh, but it was, it was you know, as, as always, the highbrow is constructed as soon as uh, the bourgeoisie tries to assert itself. And, you know, that becomes the marker of status and cultivation, this engagement with a, a certain kind of art form. Mm-hmm. So, so this is all happening, and the fan is, is violating this. They're violating the sort of bounded experience that one is supposed to have when you purchase a ticket and in exchange you sit there quietly listening to the performance. Right. They so rush we... to the stage. Yeah, they, they give flowers. They throw things. Um, this was, by the way, totally acceptable, you know, in the 18th century, or people just barely paid attention. Actually, they were just right. there at the opera to, I don't know, marry somebody or meet yeah. somebody. Yeah. Or, we talked about like, that yeah. on this show, in fact. Yes. Oh, okay. That <laughs> yeah. nobody watched. I mean, but I mean, the thing this reminds right. me, the thing is, essentially, these critics were saying these people weren't doing it right. They were going, they were consuming this thing, but they were consuming it wrong, and they were attempting right. to make a distinction between them who were doing it right and these people who were doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean? Yes, they, exactly. They were policing uh, modes of listening, and they were trying to make sure that um, there was. They were trying to tame Russian audiences and di- literally just discipline them and make them more like European audiences supposedly were becoming. Yeah, supposedly is right, because I know in my own research that this, this precisely this thing is happening all over Europe and America, that these social, these sort of entertainment entrepreneurs are discovering that it's not Hamlet, it's who plays Hamlet. It really matters. Uh, yeah, this yes, is happening exactly. everywhere. And, and, and who plays Hamlet is really important. And so the star system sort right. of develops at precisely this time, at least in the United States. And, and but at least, but, but right, exactly. So it's not perfect anywhere. But at least the ideal, the ideal is you know you're sitting there and having your own private experience. Right. Um, you're not, uh, yeah, and you're certainly not talking or whatever through the performance. And the and these and these people are they're a little too wild. Uh-huh. And the way that they're they're marginalized or the way that uh, these audi- uh, audiences are policed is so so you 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 brand these these people who are doing it wrong are then feminized. Because somebody huh. is devalued, and it just you know it all there's like a chain of association huh. formed, and and it's also linked to consumption. So they're 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 just being consumerist or or whatever. They're they're more concerned with buying the personality than they are with like 
I don't know, being enlightened and oh, swimming over art. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting well, thing is know. what a lost cause it was. I mean, because <laughs> swooning over art is what we like now. I mean, we, you know, that's, <laughs> our, that's, that's our thing. I mean, it's a total lost cause. So can you tell us, so these people were snobs. So you, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about the people who weren't snobs? These people were actually engaged. I mean, it sort of reminds me of things like, um, and we look down on these people a little bit too, people that are just a little bit too in love with Star Trek and they go to conventions and things. We don't, we don't like <laughs> yes. those people very much, but I know some of them. They're completely reasonable people. They just love that <laughs> stuff. So can you tell me a little bit about these these super fans? Right. Yeah. So they, these fans, um, are, they're main, the thing that distinguishes them is that they, they really want to engage with the person, of, of the, with the performer, uh, in a way that, uh, that, that exceeds the territory of, of the opera house. Right, and and it's it's much easier for them in this new culture in in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, particularly in Russia. It comes rather late, so it's early twentieth century, where they can open up an entertainment magazine and read all about the private life of some singer. At least, you know, within. Right? It's not like today exactly, where you really learn That's, details. But, but that it's, sounds it's familiar. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but but, but it's, it's much more than you used to get, for sure. So, so they feel more intimately connected to these artists. Like, they know what their schedules are like and where they're going next, and if there was some embarrassing incident at some theater, they know about that. And uh, so they when they then they write letters. And uh, this is the main way that they engage with, with the uh, the star apart from the outside of the opera. So it's, it's sort of de-territorialized, too. I don't know, misuse that phrase from Deleuze. So, so it, it loses um, its sense of location, and it, it, this, this person, the performer, is really in their head. Mm-hmm. This also happens with sound record, uh, the sound head. It also happens, of course, with sound recording. They buy, this is, of course, a little bit later, in, like in the teens, they can buy a record and, um, and really feel like, wow, the person's voice is here, it's with me, it's almost inside my head. It's mm-hmm. disembodied, but... I it, it allows them to sort of own it more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and, what, and what, they, yeah, and then they write these you know these letters that I I really engage with, and mostly in chapter five, but throughout the book. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the letters and you sort of the highlights of things that they say? What sort of generalities and? Sure. So I. I as for it was very looking for these letters was was kind of a pain in the neck. I imagine. It was sort of random where they would appear, and I found like about six of them when I was looking through a file of this uh, Wagnerian tenor, Ivan Yershov, whom I write about. Uh, and then I said, oh, there must be more because there are all these references to them. But of course, a lot of them probably got destroyed or they just kind of they weren't deemed important, you know, by, by the singer often. So they, who knows where they ended up. And anyway, I started to look for them and look for them. And um, I found, uh, finally, I found a kind of trove of them in uh, Fyodor Shalyakin's file about 60 or so of them, and um, and I thought, okay, finally I have a kind of sample. Uh, and then I thought, I, I kept finding them, random ones throughout, but but it was it was sort of difficult to gather them. Anyway, I started to read them, and I thought, oh my God, they're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're not the same, but they're the same. So, uh, so they're all structured the same way they all or, or very similarly very similarly so they would be these repeated you know I I struggled not to write I, I know it's just so embarrassing I'm so sorry but I just had to do it I had to do it I had this you know feeling welling up inside of me and if I didn't do it I don't know whatever it would be all, all would be lost but so I did it and you have to you have to love me you have to respect me because look how sincere I'm being look how spontaneous I'm being look how intense I am 
then and then this sort of maximalized type of celebrity figure and and you know who's larger than life was supposed to in a sense sanction this this out of control feeling. Mm-hmm. So out of control was good. Um, in other words, the, the press was making fun of these 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 fans for for that reason that they were out of control, narcissistic, etc. And these the, the real life fans seem to be echoing it, but then we're you know sort of uh, inverting the valuation. And and it was it was a good thing. It was it made them moral. It made them sincere. It made them so it made them good people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and so they, they all kind of read this way, and there would be these desperate letters, and then you could see how some people wrote up over time, so their letters would receive, you know, a kind of a, a short reply or not receive a reply, because obviously these fingers didn't answer every letter. And then they would get furious, or they would get really hurt, and write another letter and another letter. And, um, or they would, I mean, I wouldn't get all the letters necessarily, but they would refer to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that was interesting, so people often ask me, well, who are these, who are these letter writers? You know, and people are particularly concerned with their class or their estate uh, affiliation. You know, like, what group did they belong to? And what my, you know, it was very hard to assess that because they didn't, they didn't write that. They didn't sign, they, they rarely even sign their full names. Hmm. Um, they would sometimes just write gymnasium student or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, actually, that would be more of a hint than, than other. And then sometimes they would sign their names. And you could sometimes tell, of course, too, from the, their language, mm-hmm. you know, if they were educated or what their level of literacy was. But um, and it really ranged. Uh, but my point is that that it didn't matter. That was the thing. They all had this kind of structure. Which I argue, or I say, reminds me a little bit of Tatiana's letter to Onyegin from the opera Eugene Onyegin, and of course Pushkin's novel and verse. Um, but yeah, so so they all uh, there was a structure and a style and an emotional style that transcended a state category, class category. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. This is this is a silly question. Were there fan clubs? <laughs> Not that I. <laughs> No, not that I know of. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> there might have been, actually. I don't know. I didn't find any evidence of such a thing. Uh-huh. You know, there was no internet. I don't know. It's right, harder. Sure, right. <laughs> so is there any indication of how the stars reacted to these letters or to the acclaim in general? Uh, from... You can just say no. It's no. No, I, I was able. To, I was well. I was actually surprised. So sometimes there would be references in the letters. I didn't get. I I, I couldn't find very many that uh, responded. Actual letters from the star to a fan. In fact, I found none because I, you know, as you can imagine, they're harder to locate. They're not. Where would they be? You know, these things appeared in the yeah. in the stars in the singer's personal files, the fan letters. But the other, I couldn't get many running in the other direction. But but there were references. So they say, thank you for sending me your postcard with your with you in, in role of blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Or um, thanks for replying. I and I was like, they replied? Oh, wow, that yeah. was pretty good. And then occasionally it almost seemed, and I don't know, maybe it was part of the fantasy, but it almost seemed like some of, the, some of these people were groupies, and this is a little bit of an anachronistic kind yeah. of phrase, but, and that they got to even be, get intimate with, mm-hmm. for example, Sherdopton. Mm-hmm. And that he he was like an occasional pretty girl would show up in the dressing room and he'd be like, all right, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> here we are. So to <laughs> be a little crass about it. So yeah, um, that's the extent to which I know. Uh-huh. Were these people were, they, were the stars mobbed outside the theaters? Uh, it seems that they were often. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And and there, there was there were more ritualized kind of forms of after the performance was over, people would come out to take their bows. Uh, singers would come out um, to the front of the stage. There would be uh, obviously like uh, some of the fans would race down um, to to the pit and throw uh, flowers or give gifts. Like some of them were actually rather expensive or extravagant gifts to the performer. They would also send them via post. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were there were there were rituals mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. Aside from the attempt, or aside, yeah, aside from the attempt in the press to to, to explain to these people that they were doing it wrong, uh, were there any other measures taken to uh, l- limit the degree to which these uh, these fans um, expressed their very deep and intense emotional uh, bond to the stars? Yeah, I, I don't know that. It, it doesn't seem like there were too many measures, in fact. I, so one of the um, kinds of letters that I often saw uh, that sort of um, came up were these um, requests for tickets. Uh, so, so poor students would write to a star and say, please give me free passes to your next concert. I can't afford to go. So they were, they were like sort of uh, limits. It was still expensive to go to the opera. And, and, and then people would try to get around this. And sometimes um, there would be charity concerts. But that was one way that they could go. And, and also the stars would reply and would send occasionally some kind of free pass to, again, it's a kind of char- charitable act to, to people who normally couldn't afford the ticket. So I imagine that this this kind of this was destructive to certain subscription audiences were not happy about some mm-hmm. of these people entering the theater. But but aside from what the press was writing, I mean, I, it was very hard to get at and, and the kind of you know social censure that maybe um, others in the opera house would look down at this behavior. I, I don't get a sense exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, life imitates art sometimes, to use the cliche. Uh, and, and we and we see this quite a bit. Do you find any of this in um, sort of late 19th, early 20th century Russia? In other words, these people, fans or otherwise, did they emulate the stars that they loved? Uh, so they did. Um, but I think that they emulated them um, through their modes of expression and behavior. One of the things that I try to say is um, they're getting examples on the operatic stage of very intense emotional engagement. They're getting um, examples of people who are, in a sense, kind of not unlike heroes of modern life in the sense that they play many roles, they play them well, but they're supposed to be this kind of core, a container, an authentic um, part of them that that it's able to transcend or at least or at least hold all of these different roles. And uh, increasingly in a consumer society, you know, in, in like Petersburg or whatever, people have to negotiate different kinds of social terrain. Um, where, you know, like uh, consumer situations or they, they go into like with the gramophone when they're shopping for something and they need to be able to behave differently in different contexts. And these stars seem to do that very well. They serve as role models. And also... Uh, you know, perhaps they sometimes they're featured uh, at home, like in their pajamas, actually doing something normal, quote normal. And this is supposed to, uh, and I, I, you know, one could argue that yes, one picks up on certain gestures, certain ways of even sitting, and then and then uh, reproduces it. You could see it a little bit in it, there are hints of it in the letters to the to the to the opera stars that there's a kind of style that's being imitated, mm-hmm. a kind of operatic. Uh, style. Mm-hmm. You, you've mentioned these fan magazines. I don't know if fan magazines may be the wrong 
word for them, uh, but they were periodicals or they were um, occasionals that were somehow devoted to this particular culture. Can you talk? I find that fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about those? I just had no idea they existed. Well, they weren't really. I wouldn't call them fat. They were. Yeah, they were. There, well, there are three types of, of, of magazines that I basically look at. I look at uh, maybe more than three, but let, let me just see. I look at the satirical press, which I found just a hoot to read. I'm surprised that war historians don't don't make use of satirical um, magazines at this time. They're very rich. Uh, let's see. And I looked at like entertainment or theater journals. They were more. Um, was popular. There were ones that were glossier and more expensive, like art and theater or whatever, or right. art and life. And then there were um, a cheaper versions that reported on, I don't know, if they, yeah, they were just sort of, I would, I would call them entertainment weeklies. Mm-hmm. Something like the modern day version would be like Us Weekly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's a poor comparison, but that's the best I can do. Yeah. So, and then the, uh, the third type of, of magazine that I look at is the audiophile magazine. So I have a chapter on the early sound recording industry yeah. uh-huh. and the way that uh, the discourse of sound fidelity and, and this, it actually disseminated some of these um, uh, understandings of authenticity and melodramatic um forms of expression. So so the audiophile magazine, I'd like to say a few things. I mean, it's just uh, very striking. I could not believe when I started to read these. And by the way, so in Russia was among, was I think one of the first places to have such a thing, audio, audiophile magazine. Mm-hmm. The gramophone industry was very popular there. For what reason, I don't know. But um, and from, the, from the very start, the... the uh, there was an appeal to, to men. Like, okay, who's going to shop for these gadgets? It's going to be men. And we're going to make consumption of these gadgets like a masculine form of consumption that's kind of, quote, safe for them or that, that's meaningful to, to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still true, right? So, I don't know. Who's supposed to... Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the forms of, like, consumption that's, that's masculine, that's considered sort of masculine. You go out there, you find the right gadget, you do the research... You know, maybe you col- you collect stuff to do with it, or you used to like audio files would collect records, and then you you develop an esoteric knowledge and you show off to your friends. Um, but, yep. but this is a kind of it was always put in that. It was true from the very beginning, uh, at least in Russia. So I don't know. That was that was interesting to me. Uh huh. So but, uh, talk a little bit about the gramophone industry itself. I mean, I I don't know very very much about it. How did it get to Russia and and why, again, you already said you didn't know why Russians took it up so quickly, but how does it relate to the story of these particular stars and to opera? Mm. So you have people like Fred Gaysberg, who were early producers coming from England and the gramophone company and representatives of, of the gramophone company or Edison, and they would come and, and to record Russian singers, for example. And uh, that's one way that it was disseminated. Um, and then they would set up shop. Uh, these foreign companies basically set themselves up in Russia, and eventually there were some like record-pressing plants that were Russian that, that, that sprung up and competed with these, like Columbia or, or the Gramophone Company were the two, the two big ones, uh, Pate Records. Yeah. So, uh, as usual, there was a lot of importation, but then the Russians kind of caught on, and, or they had these kind of joint stock companies um, that, that they were set up. And um, the way that it links up with my... With my uh, other sort of uh, claims is that um, the early sound recordings were mostly vocal recordings. 
because the voice was the easiest uh, instrument to record. Mm-hmm. And um, and so opera was, you know, was a big deal. And, and there were other things that were easy to record. So march marching bands or whatever were easy to record. And that was there was a lot of popular stuff like that. And, and there were also other kinds of vocal recordings besides opera. For example, uh, gypsy romances were very very big in Russia. Mm-hmm. But but I argue that okay, so people had all kinds of records, maybe of marching band music or like this kind of, or even operetta or or gypsy romances. But it was that their one opera recording, which was sold for a higher price, that was gave them a kind of um, that was a status marker. So if you owned that, it was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it linked. So these these records linked. Uh, Sounds to the performer in an even more intimate, intense way. Because now, like I said, uh, like I say in the book, a voice is really penetrated um, in a, uh, everyday life. Mm-hmm. You, you could be, you know, in your home, and all of a sudden, Shanapin is is right there, or at least his voices. Mm-hmm. So, so it fostered a kind of um, an engagement that was that was more intense. Also, uh, I, I I argue that um, in the the early record reviews, sound fidelity was often linked to an intense expression of feeling. I mean, not not overtly, it was all about like, oh yes, the sound engineering is very good, but look how much louder and more intense he's able to express himself <laughs> as a result of this, of this great engineering. So, um, so, so the, the discourse of sound fidelity, even though it had this like scientific veneer, it was all that engineering, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it was really about like, how much does it facilitate uh, this melodramatic expression, uh-huh. uh, vocal expression? So we're we're almost out of time, but I, you know, there's the big questions. There's always the big questions. I'm not going to ask you how all of this relates to the coming of the revolution, which is your typical sort of question about 19th century books. Always looking forward, but I'm going to ask you how all of this relates to this notion of authenticity and melodrama, especially as it expresses itself in opera and in these records and this. this this sort of penetration of private space, so that you have this linking of 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 fan, I guess we can call it that, with the the artist. How does this affect Soviet early Soviet culture? Mm-hmm. So I do I do uh, hint at some of this in the more than hint at some of this in the epilogue that that actually what happens after the Bolsheviks come to power is that. Um, is that these melodramatic forms, they don't just evaporate. In fact, they kind of intensify. Uh, and that there are all kinds of communist practices that actually echo, uh, or, or they are melodramatic. For example, communist autobiographies or the show trial, and, and then the, um, the movies made about the show trials, and these other very sort of performative um, aspects of Soviet life, which require confession and require a kind of, yeah, they, a confessional mode. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I guess the most kind of, if I really were going to go out on a limb, and I, I do a little bit in the book, I, I mean, one could say that you know, maybe, perhaps, this melodramatic mode that we get in the Senate, yes, prepares or makes some of these Soviet practices more legible to people. So they sort of like, yeah, confession, show trial, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of, um, I mean, that's a, a crude expression of it, but but you know what I mean, they're, they're already used to uh, this kind of moral enunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the point I, I, I make. Well, I mean, I think I would say that 
uh, among all the peoples in world history, the Bolsheviks, and especially the Bolshevik leadership, had the least ironic distance from themselves of any people ever. They really thought they yes. were who they were. They, they didn't for a exactly. second doubt that they were who they were and that they had the answers. Um, you, you read Lenin, as I've been reading Lenin recently in connection with teaching. He, he is very sure of who he is and his role in history and the fact that uh, what he says is him. And there is no doubt mm -hmm. about this. And I think that you're also right that the Bolsheviks were about getting to your essence, that there was something in you that they could find and um, that could be confessed and that could be sought out and, and should be sought out and, uh, and, and, and that it was sort of your duty to get to that and to show other right. people that thing. Um, and if you look at party meetings and things like this, there's a lot of that thing going on and, and confession of, of errors and, and this is another interesting thing. I mean, they talk about errors in that way, that they're just objective. There's just, there are errors. Errors were made. You mm -hmm. made them. There's no question about them. You made them. And, and there's no beating around that bush. There's something in your essence that made that error. Uh, and the error is not to be debated. It just is the way it is, uh, which, you know, to us cynics that we are, is, is mind-boggling. You know, that they wouldn't, right. they wouldn't think for a second, well, doesn't that kind of depend on your perspective? See, to them it didn't. Depending on your perspective, it just was yeah, what it I was, guess. you know, and, and and I can kind of see that the kernel of that in in this in this idea that that you could get to the essence of, let's say, a, a film star or an essence of yourself uh, acting in this sort of melodramatic way. Um, and it is very demonstrative. I want to thank you for, for bringing that up because I, I didn't I forgot to mention that, that that ironic distance. Maybe it's obvious, but ironic distance is very taboo in a melodramatic mode. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. No, yeah. no, yeah. They, no they yeah. don't do that. They don't do that at all. And, and <laughs> no. the thing about it is it's hard for, you know, I try to convey this to my students. We have so much of it that it's hard yes, to convey yes. to them that somebody who, you know, you have to, well, let's see, a uh, let's see, an Islamist, uh, Osama bin Laden. Maybe he had no ironic distance. I don't know, but it's just so hard to. Hard to hard to find examples of people that don't kind of think they're faking all the time because we just kind of think that. Um, right. and, and so, but but these people did not. They they really thought they were who they were, and 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 that is a that is a kind of fascinating thing, and it gives you a certain strength because if you have the confidence that you are who you are, then you can go mm -hmm. ahead and do what you do in full consciousness of 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 the rightness of that. You know, there's no, right, and there's you no, can violate. I mean, paradoxically, maybe paradoxically, you can violate all kinds of social norms in the name of sincerity, in the yeah. name of you know, et cetera. So yeah. yes, yeah, you yeah. can do. It is, it's a violent kind of discourse. Just, just yeah. Well, it's not very. You know, it's, it's not. It's not very. I, I'm trying to think of the right word. It, it's not very um, accommodating or tolerant. <laughs> oh, you know, it it, it, it just got, you know because it, it sees people acting and and then it. It says, well, if you're acting that way, so that's who you are. You, you can't be playing a role because that's who you are. And so, you know, if you make an error, that's who you are. You're the thing that makes an error, so we're going to have to send you to Siberia. I mean, it, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a moment in your life. It's not, you know, perhaps you made a mistake. It's not that you were imitating people. Uh, it's, it's who you are. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's that. And, and you don't get to really negotiate it in any way. So there's no real room for you know, again, this ironic distance is really the right way to put it. And we, and again, we're just suffused with it today. I don't think people even realize how suffused we are. Yeah, I mean, it's central, it's central to our ideology. Yeah, yeah. It, it, really, it really is, because we've become different things all the time, and we're encouraged to do so, right? We, it's not as if, it's like, you know, Americans love the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the 80th chance. 
uh, whereas these people, you didn't get chances. There was just one, and that was it. And uh, and trying to find that thing, you know, was a sort of pursuit. And once you'd found it, Lenin found it very early. Uh, then mm-hmm. that was particularly that. in the thirties, yeah. in the Soviet nineteen thirties. Right, know? right. You know, you either were a communist and you had partinist, right, high partinist, or you did not. Yeah. You know, and if you didn't, well, you were going to have trouble, and there was no way you could get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. because it's authentic. Yeah. It's the thing you can't yeah, get. Yeah, too late for that. Yeah. It's, it's not yeah. something you can acquire. <laughs> it is who you are, you know, and, and I find that, yeah, that comes out in the book and is, is, is really very is really very interesting. But as I say, it's, you know, I'm repeating myself, but it's so hard to grasp that today because we are also really, we just don't really believe in authenticity anymore. I mean, that's a good thing. I don't know. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but uh, we, we don't really believe in authenticity anymore. So anyway, we take we're a, obsessed with it, but, but as a, as a, with some ironic distance, right? Yeah. Like, how long does he perform authenticity? Like some politician, he seems authentic, but we're talking about it. Like it's a thing that he can manipulate. Right. <laughs> so because he, yeah, of, right. He has authenticity as a performance. Look how authentic he looks. He speaks in a sort of mild <laughs> Southern accent. That's proof that he's authentic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he says shucks and darn. <laughs> that's the, those right. people that say shucks and darn. They're from the Midwest, and they're definitely authentic. You know, it's like, all right. <laughs> Folksy. <Yeah. laughs> Folksy, that's authentic, yeah. definitely, yeah. So yeah. so that's a very good point. Yeah, the performance of authenticity. We even have that now. So mm-hmm. that's meta on meta. So anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, and it's been a great conversation. Uh, I want to um, conclude the interview yeah. by asking our traditional final question, and that is, what are you up to now? Well, uh, something entirely different, but not maybe not so entirely different. So I'm working on uh, late Bresh or late Soviet or Brezhnev era um, childhood, or more specifically, I'm, I'm looking at animation. And um, I guess in the way that it's similar is that I'm, I'm I see animated films from the late Soviet period as expressive of something kind of fundamental about that period, and uh, I'm taking cultures that are maybe seemingly trivial or marginal and showing actually how they're widely disseminated and very central. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look, so my, my basic argument about, about the animation is it expresses a certain relationship to time, what I call a kind of presentist temporality, a notion of time where the present is uh, expanded, where the version of era folks, you know, not so much about the future, not so much about the past, more about a kind of expanded, uh, intense present. Um, an elastic present, which, mm-hmm. if you notice, isn't very Soviet necessarily, or at least uh, tradition. You know, like it's not um, looking forward to the utopia. There's a loss of the utopia, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's the sort of part of the project. And another part of the project is to explore how uh, Soviet diaspora then um, evoke or invoke this kind of relationship to time in their in their fiction or in their music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I take it up to the present. Right. Well, that's you, you, get, you get to watch a lot of good animation, then I bet. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, that is, that's a good project. Yeah, I've seen. Some I get of that to relive good, my yeah. childhood. Well, right, you know. exactly. What I was going to say. Yeah, it's I, really about me. Yeah. Well, you know what isn't? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What isn't about you? I mean, that's why we always ask the first question. You know, tell us about yourself because it's really all history books are in some sense about the people who write them. So uh, yeah. anyway, this is a terrific book. Let me tell everybody uh, that we have been talking to Anna Fishson about her book, Fandom, Authenticity, and Opera: Mad Acts and Letter Scenes in Fantasy. Russia. Anna, let me say thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. My pleasure. And let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for tuning in 
That's an anachronism. Nobody tunes in anymore. But anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope that you have a great week.